This summer we are working our way through the epistle of James, the half-brother of Jesus. And James was a skeptic for a long time until the resurrection, after which he changed his mind about Jesus. Uh, James became a prominent leader in the early church. His letter, uh, which was originally written to a, uh, a group of house churches in and around Jerusalem, uh, calls people to an authentic faith. Authentic faith doesn't just believe the right things, it puts those beliefs into practice. It doesn't just give lip service to Jesus, it takes Jesus seriously enough to actually do what he says. Authentic faith rests in God's goodness, and therefore it embraces trials as opportunities to grow into maturity. Authentic faith doesn't play favorites, rather it cherishes and cares for the vulnerable and distressed. Well, our, our text today in James is all about how we navigate relationships in a world where people often don't get along. We already know that in James's churches, the rich and the poor often were treated very differently. Individuals and groups on different sides of an issue were slinging verbal venom at each other. These fragile communities were starting to unravel. Fortunately, nothing like this happens in our day. Well, let's see what James has to say about all this, shall we? Let's take a look at verse 13 in chapter 3. Ideally. There it is. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. According to James, there are two kinds of wisdom, two ways of living and relating to other people, two ways of navigating conflict and slights, injustices and inequalities. There is a way of life that leads to peace, where communities flourish together, and there's a way of life that leads to strife and rivalries, enmity, toxicity, where relationships fall apart. And each way is built on radically different assumptions about reality. This passage has never been so relevant. So what are these two kinds of wisdom? Well, there's earthly wisdom, which James calls unspiritual, meaning God is not at the source of it. And there's heavenly wisdom, which originates in God, and which, when lived out, reflects God's character. So the question is, how do you know which kind of wisdom you're tapping into? Who is the truly wise person? James says that the truly wise person sows peace 
everywhere they go. Earthly wisdom leads to disorder and unraveling, all kinds of evil practices, but heavenly wisdom leads to peace. So what is earthly wisdom? James says that the two things that are symptomatic of earthly wisdom are bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy is exactly what it sounds like. You have what I want. I deserve what you have. And in fact, I deserve it more than you do. Bitter envy poisons relationships because it views everyone else as competition. Your success and your joy are getting in the way of my success and my joy. Bitter envy destroys relationships. It grasps and it claws rather than rejoices and shares. And bitter envy destroys joy. You can't be happy for someone if you're envious of them. You can't be happy with what you have if you're ticked off about someone else having more. So bitter envy destroys our relationships and our joy. And it's breathing down our necks all the time because our culture trains us to compare ourselves and to consume. But what about selfish ambition? Well, the Greek words here basically mean zeal for a political party. You didn't see that one coming, did you? The idea is if I belong to this group and this group gets power, then my life will have meaning. Selfish ambition is all about seeking an identity, seeking security through a tribal quest for power. And we know what this leads to. If your identity, if your sense of safety and well-being, if your life's meaning is all wrapped up in the supremacy of your tribe, then you will naturally come to distrust, look down on, resent, and even hate those who are outside of your tribe. You will view them not just as a stumbling block to your own flourishing, but as a threat to peace and justice everywhere. People on the other side of the aisle aren't just wrong, they're stupid. They're evil. They're malicious. They're what's wrong with the world. This election isn't about this set of beliefs and priorities versus that set of beliefs and priorities. It's an apocalyptic battle of good versus evil. This is what an increasing percentage of the populace believes. Unless we make a conscious decision to follow Jesus down a different path, the natural drift of our hearts, especially in this culture, will be toward bitter envy and selfish ambition. Joyless comparison and partisanship. N.T. Wright says that the combination of bitter envy and selfish ambition creates cynicism. We're just negative about everything. Inside of every silver lining is a dark cloud. Maybe at first we're really thoughtful about it. Maybe we're just trying to be wise and discerning. We don't want to let anyone pull one over us on us. But after a while, finding the shadow side to everything just becomes this compulsion, becomes an addiction. We don't trust anyone. We prejudge everything harshly. We're always assigning blame. So we move through our lives criticizing anyone in power, criticizing how the economy is run, how the airlines are run, how the deli counter is run. When we get together with our friends, we spend a lot of time complaining about this thing or that thing. And pretty soon we, we train ourselves to only see what's wrong with the world. 
And a lot of times, cynics sound really smart. They sound really sophisticated because they're not chirpy optimists. But according to James, chronic cynicism may actually be demonic because it drains us of hope and it paralyzes us from ever taking constructive action. Cynical people aren't necessarily wrong. They're often right. They often have their finger right on it. But they offer no solutions. There's no, nothing to repair what's broken. James says, this is the wisdom of the world. Now you might be thinking, well, why does James call it wisdom? Fair question. Because believe it or not, there is a logic to it. And the logic goes like this. If there's no God, I have to look out for myself. Because if I do not, nobody else will. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and I must get what I deserve. And when I look around, I see some of my classmates, some of my coworkers, some of my neighbors have surpassed me, and that's not okay. And those people over there, they're getting too much, and I deserve what they have, and by golly, I'm going to get it. And these people, they have too much power, and those people over there have too much influence, and as a result, the world is going to hell in a handbag. So I will do whatever I have to do to even the score, to balance the power, to get what I deserve. And if I can't do that, and I probably can't, then I will at least try to make you feel guilty about what you have. And I will make it abundantly clear that you came about it dishonestly and that I deserve it more than you do. The logic is sound. If we're all alone in a dog-eat-dog -dog world in which power and wealth and joy and flourishing is a zero-sum game, the wisdom of bitter envy and selfish ambition make perfect sense. Racism, classism, and every kind of prejudice and discrimination all make perfect sense from this perspective. If we're all just highly evolved animals trying to survive, that makes all the sense in the world. Every family squabble, every public skirmish, every church split, every war is just nature doing its thing. James says this is the wisdom of the world. This is the human default setting apart from God. The logic makes perfect sense. If there's no God, if nature is violence and competition, then the only way to guarantee security and blessing is to fight like hell. Draw lines, build walls, antagonize, exploit, deride, demonize. This is why earthly wisdom cannot create peace. It can only create disorder. Thankfully, there's another option. Thankfully, there's wisdom from above. James says that the sign, the fruit of true wisdom is humility. Now, humility is one of those virtues that's often misunderstood. Humility is not beating yourself up. It's not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility comes about through a Copernican revolution of the heart and mind in which something other than you begins to dominate your thoughts. Something other than you becomes your point of reference. In the Hebrew wisdom tradition, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that phrase, fear of the Lord, does not mean cowering fear. We're not supposed to be afraid of God. 
but we revere him. We respect him. We're in awe of him. We want to please him. Imagine if, if a, a famous person that you respected was going to be at your house tonight. What would you do? You'd go home and you'd clean your house from top to bottom and you'd make sure you had something delicious to serve, right? You would lay out the red carpet. Fear of the Lord is like that. It's moving through your life thinking about what will please him. What will bring joy to his heart? Humility is what is formed in us when God displaces our ego, our selfish ambition from the center of our imaginations. Humility means I'm no longer preoccupied with getting. So I can invest a lot more of my time, a lot more of my energy in giving and serving and responding to other people's needs. Humility means I'm no longer preoccupied with my social status and what people think about me. So I can focus more of my energy lifting up those around me. Humility means I, I know that the line between good and evil runs right down the center of my own heart. And so I no longer divide the world into good people and bad people. Which means I'm now free to critique my own side. I'm free to see God's image and likeness in those that the world sets up as my enemy. A humble person isn't easily offended. They're slow to speak, slow to take offense, slow to become angry. A humble person isn't overly sensitive to criticism. In fact, they're open to rebuke. They solicit feedback about their blind spots. A humble person is teachable. They're open to new information. They're eager to listen to and to learn from others, even those who are different. True wisdom begins when you let God displace you at the center of your life. This creates humility. And humility is a gateway drug to all kinds of virtues. James says that the wisdom, uh, verse 17, that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Let's keep that verse up for a while. A pure person is not corrupted by the world. Their life has been deeply formed by God's character through constant communion with him. A peace-loving person doesn't seek out or avoid conflict. He or she moves toward conflict, seeking reconciliation. A considerate person is willing to yield. They don't have to get their, their way all the time. They can defer. They can be flexible. They can compromise. This is the opposite of someone who always stands on their rights. Now, we don't like the word submissive, but it's actually a good word. A submissive person is a good listener. A submissive person listens to reason and is open to being persuaded. This is the opposite of a partisan. It's the opposite of someone who prejudges people. Someone who is full of mercy and good fruit is ready and willing to give their time, to give their resources to someone in need, even if that person is their enemy. This is the opposite of envy. It's disadvantaging yourself to advantage someone else. An impartial person doesn't play favorites. They don't calculate. They don't treat you differently depending on who you are and what you can do for them. 
They simply give people their due as image bearers. A sincere person is the same person no matter who they're with. They're the same in public as they are in private. They live a coherent and consistent life. Friends, this is what humility looks like. The kind of humility that flows from heavenly wisdom. We can go to a blank slide. Again, the word wisdom is appropriate because there's a logic to this way of life. It flows from the conviction that God is in charge and God is good. He's reliable. He doesn't change. You can trust him to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this God is just and merciful. He lifts up the humble, but he scatters the proud. Those who rest in God's essential goodness and generosity are at ease. They don't fret. They don't feel the need to grasp and claw and compete in order to secure themselves. They don't need to hitch their wagon to a political party or an ideological tribe in order to gain a sense of self or a feeling of power or significance. Why? Because they trust in God's character. They trust in God's goodness. They trust in God's ability to provide for their needs. They trust in God's promise to one day destroy evil and make all things new. Those who are truly wise know that God is not only useful, he's beautiful. And because they are smitten with his beauty, they want to reflect his beauty through lives of generosity and grace. One author commented on these verses, God has given me the talents that I have, whether great or small. He's given me my place in life, whether prominent or obscure. Whatever my lot, I know God will bless me and I can serve him faithfully. Those are good words. When you believe that, when that logic gets deep inside of you, it creates peace. It settles you down. It gets you off your high horse. It helps you to loosen your grip on your power, your wealth, your status, your ambition. Slowly but surely, it turns you into the kind of person who can create peace who embodies a non-anxious presence in the world, who can move through life confidently and humbly, even toward people who are different, toward need, toward pain, toward poverty and conflict without fear. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It comes as God replaces our selfish ambitions at the center of our imaginations and it sets us free to value God and others first above ourselves humility is the only path to peace it is the only path to flourishing without it all we have is bitter envy and selfish ambition without it pride will run the show humility creates peace pride creates disorder and toxicity this is wisdom from above this is also a hard sell so let me give voice to some of the critics. One critic might say, I'm sorry, James, but this is, this is very un-American. Americans don't defer. Americans fight for their rights to party. Americans revolt if that's what's needed. 
Americans are always ready to fight and scrape and claw for what they deserve. And that's all true. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Christians march to the beat of a different drum. We are called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We are foreigners and exiles longing for our true home. We shouldn't feel at home in America. Another critic might say, well, this all sounds very, very virtuous, but I'm sorry to say it does not work. It's all very virtuous and very noble, but purity and sincerity and submission are not going to get the job done. And I would argue the wisdom of humility is the only thing that works. When has cynicism ever worked? What has partisan fighting ever accomplished? How has bitterness and envy moved the needle in any meaningful way at all? Fighting doesn't change the world. It just changes who's in power. It just replaces one bully with another. If you really want to change things, you have to remain peaceful when everything, everyone else is lashing out. If you really want to change the world, you have to overcome evil with good. Great warriors don't change the world. They just redraw the lines. William Wilberforce changed the world by persuading his enemies. Martin Luther King Jr. changed the world by being willing to suffer. Jesus changed the world by dying for his enemies. The early Christians changed the world by serving the empire that was trying to snuff them out. Don't tell me what works and what doesn't. Martin Luther King Jr. had it right. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The myth of our modern politics is that you can change things by winning, by owning the opposition. Jesus changed the world by losing, by laying down his life for the opposition. Another critic might say, humility and gentleness are weak. Who wants to be a pushover? To which I would say, who said anything about being a pushover? It takes incredible strength to be gentle. Are you kidding me? If you think gentleness is easy, you never tried to offer a gentle answer to someone who's tearing you to pieces. It takes enormous strength to remain calm when your child is lashing out at you. Or when a coworker tries to take credit for your work or tries to blame you for their mistake. It takes tremendous courage to be a peacemaker and to insert yourself between two parties who are at each other's throats. It takes courage to change your mind and say, I was wrong, or to call out your own tribe when it is wrong. It takes courage to cross the road and befriend someone that the world sets up as your enemy. Humility is hard. Gentleness is not for the faint of heart. I was reflecting this week on two friends I've known over the years, one named Judy, the other named Bradley. They're not from around here. Both of them loved Jesus, but their spouses did not. And for decades, both of them suffered intense ridicule. And at times, their faith was belittled and derided by their spouses. But they did not abandon their faith, and they did not abandon their marriage. Instead, they remained faithful to Jesus and to their spouse. They absorbed the blows but they refused to lash out, they refused to get even, 
They just quietly follow Jesus with integrity and continue to love and pray for their spouse. And after about 20 years, Bradley's wife, Monica, came to faith. And after about 35 years, Judy's husband, Chris, came to faith. Wisdom is the capacity to love someone who despises what you hold most dear. I'll say that again. Wisdom is the capacity to love someone who despises what you hold most dear. That's not easy. Don't ever say gentleness is easy. Jackie Robinson was, of course, the Hall of Fame baseball player who broke the color barrier. He was better at football, actually. Uh, but football was already integrated, and he wanted to open doors for more people. Jackie was a strong man. He had deep convictions. His family taught him to be assertive and to stand up for himself. But he knew that if he did that, it would blow up in his face. So for two years, he said nothing. For two years, he absorbed countless racial slurs and all kinds of dehumanizing language and threats, the worst kind of venom a human being can inject into another person. And through it all, Jackie was a model of self-control. And over time, the wisdom of gentleness combined with the solidarity and love of his teammates silenced most of his critics. Jackie absorbed the blows so that generations of black ball players could absorb the cheers. Don't say that humility and gentleness are easy. They are not easy, but they are beautiful. And they are the beauty that changes the world. There have been voices in the American church in recent years that have advocated for the exact opposite of what James is saying in our passage today. They say, well, you know, in a previous era, when the church had more cachet, more cultural power, Christians could afford to be winsome and gentle. But today, with the church losing ground and so much at stake in our culture, it's time to put those old ways behind us and fight like hell. These are, these are prominent voices with enormous, enormous influence over the church. How sad. How sad that we have given up on the way of Jesus and given up on the fruit of the Spirit so easily. Humility was never a strategy for gaining power and influence in the culture. Humility is our calling to embody the way of Jesus in the world. Gentleness isn't something we cultivate only when it's politically expedient. It's a fruit of the Spirit that we cultivate because we love Jesus. If you fight like hell, the best case scenario is you gain the world and forfeit your soul. As one author said, if you're fighting a culture war, you're already losing. We are approaching an election year. Ooh. And we have a choice to make friends. Will we engage according to earthly wisdom or according to heavenly wisdom? We can allow ourselves to be co-opted by those in power. Or we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We can give in to our selfish ambitions and move through this season thinking, what's in it for me? 
Or we can move through the season thinking about how to best serve the vulnerable among us. We can throw gasoline on the fire of our toxic public discourse, or we can move toward one another with genuine curiosity. We can anxiously try to secure ourselves with political victories and cultural power, or we can rest in God's sovereign goodness. We can divide the world into us and them, or we can move freely and easily between tribes, prayerfully offering to broker peace. Verse 18 says that peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And that may sound like James is saying peacemakers are really swell people. No, that's not what it means. James is saying peacemakers create healthy communities in which people live in right relationship with each other. Just as two people's conflict can poison the whole community, those who reconcile and make peace can positively impact the whole community. The wisdom of humility is that it creates peace. And look no further than Jesus when the, tri- when the, when the crowd tried to co-opt Jesus to serve their political agenda. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. When men came to arrest Jesus and Peter pulled out a sword, Jesus said, Peter, you knucklehead, put that sword away. And when Peter swung his sword anyway and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus picked up the ear and restored it to the side of his head. Jesus washed the feet of those who would deny and betray him. He forgave those who tortured and mocked him. Jesus came in humility and he made peace. He came to reconcile us to God and to one another, to turn enemies into friends. And when we become united with him, the whole focus of our lives change from accumulating to sharing, from winning to loving, from securing ourselves to looking out for the little guy. We become part of God's conspiracy to turn the world right side up. Our rules of engagement become radically different. Early on, during the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. required everyone who marched with him to sign a pledge. Listen to the pledge. It says, I promise to meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. I promise to remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. I promise to walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. I promise to pray daily to be used by God in order that all people might be free. There's no tribalism here. I promise to sacrifice personal wishes in order that all people might be free. I promise to observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. I promise to seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. And then finally, I promise to refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Doesn't it sound like he had been meditating on James chapter 3? If he were alive today, I wonder if he would add, I promise to guard my heart and mind against voices that stoke fear, distrust, resentment, suspicion, or hatred toward any of my neighbors. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. 
may it be so. Let's pray. God, thank you that wisdom is a person, a person we can know. If we need to know what wisdom looks like, if we need to know what humility looks like, we need look no further than Jesus. Give us the desire, give us the discipline, the habit of immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus, of immersing ourselves in his words and his actions, abiding in the person of Jesus so that more and more we can walk as Jesus walked. May our church, may the church everywhere faithfully live out more and more the wisdom of humility within our own ranks and as we're scattered throughout society, especially now as our world becomes more and more polarized and divided, may we be a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted generation, inviting those both far and near to take refuge in the arms of Jesus and to find life and peace in him. In his name we pray, amen.